Wikipedia is not meant to be truth. What Wikipedia focuses on is what do we know that is accurate and what do we know that is verifiable and how do we present that in a way that allows a reader to come to an informed conclusion about what's going on in the world. If there's bias that exists in Wikipedia, it's being propagated out with every time Wikipedia is used as a training database. And I don't think that's a future that any of us want. You're listening to Big Tech, a podcast about the emerging technologies that are reshaping democracy, the economy, and society. I'm David Scott, and this is my co-host, Taylor Owen. Hi, welcome to the show. So Taylor, in this episode, we're talking to Catherine Marr, the Chief Executive Officer and Executive Director of the Wikimedia Foundation. So Catherine's someone I've known for a long time. We used to work together at a previous moment where the internet was going through a real change, when activists around the world were using social media, particularly um, in the Arab world, where Catherine was working very closely around activists using technology to upend autocratic regimes, to democratize their countries. But now she's somewhere very different. She's the head of the Wikimedia Foundation, which I think is also, again, playing a real pivotal role in a transition that the internet is going through. Yeah, and that transition is quite complex with the uh fake news and facts, but how, you know, extrapolate on that a little bit for us. How is the internet changing and what is Wikimedia's role in it today? Yeah, so I think at the moment, we're at this time when we don't have great signals for reliable information on the internet. It's very difficult as a user of the internet, as someone who searches for content and information or consumes news, to know whether what we are getting is reliable and whether it's factual. So, More and more platforms are looking to Wikipedia to be that place that serves up answers. For example, when you ask your smart speaker a question like, why is the sky blue? Yeah, that's it. And that's that's why this gets even more complex is it's, it's not just people using the internet and people and users needing reliable information. It's the platforms themselves. So how, if you ask a question like that to your smart speaker, how does it know the answer? It can't just go and query all the content on the internet because we know a lot of it isn't factual. So that's where Wikipedia comes in. It is essentially a database for these platforms to feed reliable information into them. So when you ask, why is the sky blue to your Alexa, Alexa can then draw on the reliable information that sits within Wikipedia. So it's becoming a very important layer in the way the internet works. Fascinating. So let's get right to it. Catherine Marr is joining us from Wikimedia's office in San Francisco. Hi, Catherine. Hey, how's it going? That's going great. Um, We're really glad to have you on the show. So before we talk about your work at the Wikimedia Foundation that you're doing now, I, I wanted to go back a bit into your professional history. You've really been working broadly in this space of the internet and democracy um, for a long time, and and you've seen and worked in uh, a real evolution in this conversation over the past decade. And I wanted to start there because I think taking a minute to reflect on that time, on that, on really that moment of optimism over a decade ago. So what was it about the promise of digital communications that inspired you to work in this space at that time? Yeah, so I got involved in the space of technology for development, human rights, democracy, um, back in 2007 when I was working for UNICEF. And the 
conversation that we were having at the time was was really around this sort of leapfrog revolution, uh, which is, you know, if today's conversation is all about the next billion coming online, this was all about how these new technologies were going to overcome some of the structural barriers of, of existing tech and how it connected people. So not just questions of internet connectivity, but questions of landline connectivity, questions of roads and access. We were looking at the rise of mobile networks uh, entering into places that had previously not had connections, recognizing as well that the next step forward there was going to be the rise of data-enabled services and trying to anticipate what that was going to mean for bringing people closer in touch to access to information and access to services. And at UNICEF and other you know, organizations I went on to work for, we were really interested in how do you use these tools to not just think about how to provide services to people, but how do you engage them in a conversation about what their needs are? How do you improve the sort of quality of services they have access to, their voice in thinking about you know, the governance of those resources that would be provided? And, and so I moved from, I think, the UNICEF world to to working into the democracy and governance world, predicated on the idea that this technology was going to be a great connector and a great enabler. And I was thinking, Taylor, as you asked the question about you know, the sort of decade ago that we're sitting here having this conversation now amidst another shutdown of the internet in Iran, about 10 years after the 2009 internet shutdown in Iran, that uh, really, I think, put on the map in a very meaningful way the whole question of technology not just as a as an enabler, but technology as a tool that could also really be turned against a population and used to, to repress or to surveil or to otherwise impede um, citizen voice and participation. So... Yeah, it's it's sort of a we we came full circle. We were the techno optimists, and now we were the techno pessimists. And I think now we've just accepted that technologies is part of everything we do. In the same way, you know, pencils are technology, and radio is technology. It, it is what it is, and that raises all sorts of other questions about how it's built and what its intentions are. You know, I, I think to Tahrir Square and the Arab Spring, as as Taylor mentioned, uh, the promise of those few months, and then the complete eradication of that promise. And, you know, Taylor and I have had conversations with others about the promise of open data and and the common space and how so much of that has has been closed off to people. How have you, you know, personally come to to terms with that? And how do you maintain your optimism about what the space can be? <laughs> Who says I'm an optimist? <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, I think back to those days too. And, and I, I do just want to acknowledge that the, the promise for Tahrir Square may still yet be in the offing, right? I, when we look at things from the perspective of a decade, we're being pretty ahistorical as to how social and political change occurs over the course of, of human history. It, it's not generally sort of one, one big bloody revolution and everything changes over the course of a year. It really meaningful structural change is, is sort of intergenerational. I remain in the camp of thinking that Maybe Tahrir was was part of a series of seismic shifts that we may see continue over the course of my lifetime. Um, and I also just want to acknowledge that you know Tanisha's doing relatively well. But having said all of that, I I don't necessarily think of myself as an optimist at this point. I think of myself as inspired by what Wikimedia can model for us as a different way of uh, technology bringing people together, as a different way of thinking about platform governance. Uh, is a different way of thinking about sort of fulfilling the promise of open technology on behalf of the public interest. But 
you know, that kind of stands apart today from the actual landscape that we look at in which many of the things that we worried about coming to pass have come to pass. I think the optimism can be useful in terms of getting out of bed in the morning and continuing to make efforts in order to see and achieve the type of world that we want to be a part of. But I think optimism can also blind us to the difficulty of the work that we need to get done. Was one of the blind spots almost that there was too much focus on this citizens empowerment versus state repression aspect of the challenge and less on the tech infrastructure that was being built on top of that? I mean, the I feel like a lot of this discourse ended up missing the rise of platforms, for example, because it was so focused on state surveillance and repression versus citizen empowerment and rights. And it assumed that platforms were on the side of the people, right? So if you think back to a decade or so ago, the assumption was that that tech platforms were inherently good. They, you know, were not going to do any evil. They were very much aligned with sort of this increased freedoms and opportunity. Um, and and for quite a while they were. I think that you know that was that was a naive assumption, but it was also an assumption that was predicated on the information we had available to us. You had companies pushing back for the most part against government censorship, against a warrantless data collection. You had companies that hadn't yet had to really contend with sort of market forces uh, that were standing up for their users' rights and standing up for the importance of encryption and all of the sort of good things that that we, I think, in civil society were, were very pleased to see and align with. So I'm not sure so much that it missed the platforms as a conversation so much as didn't anticipate the ways in which the platforms would ultimately end up contending with questions of you know, jurisdictional power, authoritarian rule, all of the you know market forces, all of the sort of things that have really turned the tech companies from the startups they were into the conglomerates that they are or the tech empires that they are today. You went to Wikimedia, and why is this the place to work on these issues uh, that you've cared about for 20 years? <laughs> um, the reason for... I'm just laughing. I'm like, 20 years, it's been that long. Oh, my goodness. Uh, the the reason is is really that Wikimedia is, is just such a remarkably unique organization at this point in time. So the Wikimedia Foundation is the organization that's sort of the home to Wikipedia. And we've been around for about 20 years now, and, and much of the values that were embedded in our creation are still the ones that animate all of our work. So a commitment to open source, a commitment to open culture and open licensing in our content, a commitment to community governance. Uh, so the Wikimedia Foundation works directly with the volunteer editing community to make determinations around how to assign resources, uh, how to build strategy, how to think about what we should be focused on in the world, questions of what our policy platform should be and what kind of advocacy voice we might want to have. There's a really deeply embedded relationship there that allows us, some people will say, instead of being you know, a platform with a community, we're a community with a platform. And I think that that's just an inversion of the way that most other large tech platforms operate and see themselves. And in that sense, there's both a, an accountability to the public about what it is that we do and an accountability to the community you know, that this is something that we really that we really build together. I think the other thing that is is so unique is that while those values that I, I just spoke of, this sort of openness, independence, freedom, they often these days get characterized as sort of internet libertarian values that didn't accommodate or anticipate the very real challenges that we have come to see on the internet, questions of how do we handle freedom of expression? How do we address issues of doxing and harassment? 
I'm so heartened to be a part of is the community has not only made an effort to hold true to those values, but also continued to integrate its identity and, and you know, the work that it does to incorporate questions of how do we become more pluralistic? How do we ensure that the community is more diverse? How do we really think about what does it mean to have spaces in which everyone can participate, in which various voices, um, you know, marginalized and minority voices get to be part of the conversation? It's, a, it's an interesting mix of, of an organization that comes from a place that I think brought a lot of, you know, assumptions that have since in some ways proven to not really be sufficient to take an organization or a platform forward with an organization or community that's that's really tried to continue to evolve in order to to keep pace with the nature of the world and perhaps a more inclusive understanding of its power. I'm struck by that in that when it was founded, it was critiqued for being unreliable as a source of truth, mm. right? And now we're in this moment where, I mean, you've said that you are concerned truth might become fractured. I think that is part of the bigger epistemic challenge we're facing right now of how we get reliable information in our digital public sphere. And Wikipedia has actually become sort of a backbone of reliable information in it now. Yeah. And I wonder if you could kind of reflect on that a little bit, like that arc of going from this new form of knowledge production as it was to something now that is is sort of a, a providing reliable information into the digital ecosystem. Yeah. This is a sort of you know, your teachers tell you not to trust Wikipedia. And we actually would say that's that's probably right. <laughs> you know, you shouldn't trust anything you read on the internet without being really thoughtful about what it is that you're reading. You also probably should check to see what kind of corrections your local newspaper has run since, you know, the last edition. You know, people get things wrong all the time. Our knowledge continues to evolve and change. And we want readers of Wikipedia to be critical readers. That's the promise of what Wikipedia offers is that, we try to be very transparent about where the information comes from. That's why you have citations at the bottom of every page. We have a commitment to making sure that the content on Wikipedia can be edited by anyone. So if there's something inaccurate, any reader has the you know ability to go in and improve the accuracy or find an additional source or flesh out a differing perspective. That is the promise of what we're trying to do is this sort of continued evolution towards greater accuracy, greater integrity of information. You can see every aspect of the edit history and all the code is open source. It's really designed from the ground up to be an open system that people can participate in. And what I think is very different about that is, you know, if we start from the position of not being trusted and having to continuously earn the trust of the general public, that puts us in a very different dynamic relative to sort of this effort at self-improvement in terms of a body of content than perhaps you see in other sources where, you know, if you're a media organization, maybe you, you assume you have trust and you sort of wonder why you don't have it. The other thing that I would say is we try to be really careful not to use the language of truth. Wikipedia is not meant to be truth. It's simply what we can sort of agree upon as general consensus about an issue at any point in time. Truth is, a, is all about the lens that we bring to a topic area. It's not just facts. It's you know facts plus context. What Wikipedia focuses on is not the sort of ultimate truth of, of any situation. What Wikipedia focuses on is what do we know that is accurate and what do we know that is verifiable and how do we present that in a way that allows a reader to come to an informed conclusion about what's, what is going on in the world or what's important to them. It's funny hearing you talk about these things. Uh, I'm a journalist. I've been an editor for 20 years, so I'm familiar with that 20-year mark as well. 
And I'm hearing you talk about these things, accuracy, verification, truth. These are all the things that I hold near and dear and that all journalists hold near and dear. How do you think the Wikimedia world differs from what most would consider traditional journalism? I think there's a lot of ways in which we differ, and there's some ways in which we try very hard to adhere to some similar principles. Uh, you know, ways in which we differ is that we're an omnibus reference, right? So we have information that is not inherently journalistic in nature in the sense that it's general reference information. What's the chemical composition of water? You know, that's that's a pretty important part of the offering of Wikimedia. We also are not seeking to consistently provide sort of the newest information about a particular topic or unearth new interpretations or, or, or uh, new understandings of, of an issue. What we try to do is provide a um, longitudinal reference point to say, you know, this is the, the, some, the general context overview of, of what, you know, what is interesting about this topic. And here's how it might have been considered at one point in time, or here's the history of it. Here's how we, people think about it today. It's a complementary product to traditional journalism. It also is something that relies really heavily on on certain aspects of traditional journalism, both in the sense of you know the process of verification. So all Wikipedia articles need to have references to what we call reliable sources. That is very often a media outlet of some sort of sort. And the way that Wikipedia editors consider reliable sources is they you know, have to have a process of fact-checking, editorial review, peer review. Um, and so we really act as a sort of a layer on top of, a, of an overall media ecosystem. And, and to that end, I think it's incredibly important that that media ecosystem is healthy and has vibrant business models and has the trust of the public. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I wonder if Whereas journalism sort of had a, a bit of a monopoly on being that layer of accurate information that society depended on, whether it was institutions or the public or the private sector, whatever it might be. And now you have this sort of alternate layer of accurate information or of processes to create accurate information in the digital space. And because of that, it seems to me that the platforms are the tech platforms and technology companies in general are relying on you, right? More and more, like they're using your information. And is that becoming a challenge? And are the companies that are leveraging your information and process contributing to the production of the knowledge that you're doing? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think that what we really view ourselves on, you know, Wikipedia is all is a tertiary source based on secondary sources. So those secondary sources, as I mentioned, are very often the news media, but it's often, you know, journalistic research and, and sort of other sort of areas of specialization. So that's where I think it complements it. We're really a front door into good reporting, I think would be one way of thinking about it, you know, providing that summary of, of the work of uh, many institutions or organizations who are going out and, and doing that shoe leather type of work. The way that that has now been picked up, because Wikipedia is all published with an open license, that's a Creative Commons license. It means that anybody can reuse it as long as they attribute it back to Wikipedia. The tech companies, which are increasingly interested in, in being able to solve all of their users' problems in sort of one click or what Google search results refer to as sort of zero click, which is all about providing information, uh, you know, at the at the first point of search to minimize the friction that somebody has to go through in order to get their question answered, and you know that's a, that search results, that sort of voice assistance. Wikipedia is a very 
big part of that ecosystem because of the fact that it generally is considered, you know, has a high trust index relative to to users. Uh, people trust it and they they rely on it. Um, has incredible breadth in terms of the information that it provides. So you can use it to look up questions of current affairs or, you know, um, 16th century Islamic art or political systems you know, or, you know, pop stars. Uh, and so it really has become a very big part of the sort of offering of all of these platforms, not just in the immediate content, which is like, hey, Siri, can you tell me the birth date of um, Bibi Netanyahu, uh, but also in training a lot of the underlying uh, aspects of the, the platforms themselves. So Wikipedia, because it is this really large corpus of open information and open data, and Wikidata as well, has become a pretty integral part of the natural language processing ecosystem, which is how do you train computers to parse human ways of, of putting information forward, and how do you then train computers to sort of spit back out information in a way that, that seems natural to a human and the way that we read and write. So there's there's just we've gone from being sort of this article, you know, encyclopedia for the Internet to being a pretty critical part of the infrastructure of the 21st century when it comes to the way that we hold, maintain and distribute knowledge. So, Catherine, just to kind of pin you down on this, if I may, do do you you know, when you're doing a fundraising drive, uh, do the tech platforms pay up? (laughs) Uh, Do are you happy with the amount of money they're giving you? Should they give you more? Uh, no, I, I was going to get to that. I didn't mean to evade the question. Uh, the the answer is is that uh, it's a mixed bag. From our perspective, the amount of value that you know the commons, and that's not just Wikipedia, but the commons in general, creates in the world is is really significant um, from a commercial and non commercial standpoint. I don't think that the commons is compensated relative to the value that it creates. I think that if we were operating Wikipedia or any other number of products, um, you know, sort of commons-based organizations were operating as as for-profit entities, they would be negotiating very different con- sort of contractual relationships. Um, but that's not our goal. We're not we're not here to maximize profit. That's that's not what we want. What we do want is a commons that is sustainable over the long term and a commons that serves the greatest number of people. So for us, sustainability is partially monetary. It's about making sure that we have the resources to continue to invest in growing the commons to ensure that our technology can continue to evolve in order to meet changing interface and platform needs. But it's also to think about what is the commons that doesn't exist yet. So you know, most of Wikipedia as exists today, most of the commons in general, you know, exists at is largely reflective of the global north. It is also largely reflective of a certain subset of demographics. You know, it's largely white, it's largely male, it's sort of the history of the written word and and the written world. What Wikimedia is very committed to, and and I think this, I'm going to promise I'm going to connect this back, is how do we actually grow a commons that's of value to everyone? And so when we think about long-term sustainability, it's what are the resources necessary to meet, you know, the needs, the knowledge needs, and support the knowledge needs of people who aren't currently either on the web, that, that next billion, or who don't have access or, or don't see themselves reflected because their languages aren't reflected and the like. So that that requires a degree of investment that, you know, is not currently supported by that population those folks aren't donors to Wikipedia right now, but it doesn't mean that it's not any less important that we actually go ahead and serve them. So this, from a sustainability standpoint, it's financial, but it's also ensuring that, you know, as platforms go out and use Wikipedia content, they're not getting in between Wikipedia 
and the user and the you know the person on the other end. And what I mean by this is if Wikipedia's model is all about you know, constant editing and constant updating and the introduction of new material and new topics, we need to have a way in which people can do that, um, you know, directly into the platform, directly into the database. And the more in ways in which Wikimedia is intermediated by a voice assistant or a search result, the harder it is to ensure the health and long-term sort of sustainability of the generation of content and its its sort of uh, relevance, temporality, and the like. So we, the conversations we have with the platforms are, yeah, they're monetary, but we try to make sure that they're monetary, not just on our behalf, but on behalf of the sustainability of the commons overall. And then they're also really thinking about, like, what is the interface of the experience that someone has here so they can participate in knowledge, not just consume it, and that they feel like they have the ability to have an active voice and, and monitor for the integrity of the knowledge itself. You, you mentioned the some of the challenges that uh, Wikipedia has had with gender representation in its community. What have been the implications of this? And and how are you dealing with it? And I'm curious more broadly and what you think other tech companies can learn from some of the work that you've done in this area. So interestingly enough, Wikipedia as a platform um, is actually not doing as well as other tech companies in terms of the ratios of participation, gender participation. So Wikipedia's uh, our best numbers sort of indicate that about 80% of our contributors are male and about 20% of our contributors are female. Other platforms are far closer to you know, parity um, between men and, and women in terms of participation. Uh, and I'm talking platforms like Pinterest or Facebook, uh, where you have you know a, sort of a wide general purpose audience. But what that means for us when it comes to the the participation of editors or content creators on Wikipedia is that we often are missing things that we would want to see reflected. So similar to the numbers around editor participation, just under 20% of all of English Wikipedia's biographies are about women. About 80% of the biographies are about men. That is not necessarily to draw the inference that men only write about men and women only write about women. There's many other factors at play there, including you know original source material about women of historic note. Um, there's a lot of bias as you go back into the canon about who got written about and who didn't. And it's still true today. You know, women are underrepresented in sort of positions of, of power and, and the coverage of, of, those, of their accomplishments and roles. That is what sort of drives some of these gaps. And they're not just about women. It's also about people of color. It's about, you know, marginalized communities, uh, indigenous communities. A lot of the knowledge and representation that we'd want to see on Wikipedia isn't quite there. We have at the Wikimedia Foundation view this as a problem, as do the folks in our community, because when it comes to how do you serve all the world's knowledge, you really, you know, we have to make sure it reflects all the world's people. Otherwise, you know, it's a hard argument as to why everyone should want to use it if they don't see their knowledge reflected there. Uh, and so we've worked very closely with our, the volunteer editor community to support and resource efforts that they make in order to address some of these gender imbalance. Um, there's a number of initiatives around bringing more women into editing Wikipedia, but also about ensuring that you know there's greater diversity reflected in the content on Wikipedia. And then we're also looking at what are the changes that we might need to make in the product experience. And so that's like the interface of how you edit Wikipedia to create more on-ramps for people who would like to participate but don't necessarily know how. And that's that's not just women. That's you know lots of different folks in general. Uh, representation matters in the sense of if I go to look for something uh, about a you know a, a African American 
uh, woman scientist, uh, and I don't see that the that individual is reflected, it means that you know I don't have a necessarily a model for how you know African American women can become a top researcher at NASA, and so that representation I think is is you know fundamentally critical. I think that's widely accepted. What I think also really matters is it's Wikipedia, given how prominent a role it plays in the public discourse, if Wikipedia doesn't have it, it also seems as though it is making a value judgment about what is important in the world. That's not the values of our organization. But I think the last and and most perhaps important thing for us is that given what I was speaking about earlier, the role of Wikipedia in informing computational science, if there's bias that exists in Wikipedia, it's being propagated out with every time Wikipedia is used as a training database. So we know, for example, that an article about a woman is four times more likely to mention her marital status than an article about a man. If you're doing training of of sort of semantic pairing and you start to associate someone's marital status with their gender insofar as there's a sort of higher correlation of value to someone being married or divorced being a woman, that propagates that bias out into all of the products that are then going to go ahead and use that algorithm or that data set in the future. But unlike Wikipedia, which you can go in and fix and edit and rebalance and work towards neutrality and continuous improvement, you know, those become sort of blind to our system and we end up living in a world that is suffused with with sort of product bias. And I don't think that's a future that any of us want. Yeah, and and it's the fact that there is this process that's perceived as being neutral and creating a neutral knowledge via this process that Wikipedia enables that could lead, arguably, to these biases of the contributors uh, being further entrenched. Yeah, that's right. And so one of the things that our, I think our research team is very focused on is internally within our organization is building what we think of as ethical AI or ethical machine learning that can be a model for how not only do you build tools and services that are open, but you also think about how do you build in auditing mechanisms and accountability mechanisms? How do you publish the data sets? How do you make sure that there's awareness of how these models are being built trained and then how do we make sure that when we are able to identify biases or problems that we've got mechanisms for for actually actively retraining them and this is a big part of the conversation that we're having is is really a we want researchers to be aware of the need to correct for bias if they're using the wikipedia training data sets but also we're we're trying to build systems themselves that model the kind of behavior that we think the broader tech community should be engaged with in adopting I want to let's step back a little bit away from Wikipedia and one of the debates that I've been watching closely over the last little while and participating in around particularly around content moderation and the governance of platforms has been what seems to be this real divide emerging in the digital rights community between those that want to prioritize free speech on these systems. Mm and those that want to prioritize protection from harmful speech. And I'm very curious what you think of it, because you know that community so well and are fundamentally a part of it. And I'm sure you know people and the organizations on both sides of that conversation right now. I'm wondering what you think of that. Yeah, so you're you're asking this question of should platforms um, be required to moderate hateful speech, for example? The moment you sort of walk into this conversation, it it becomes so much more multifaceted than I think the sound bites that we see from politicians, right? So the primary question tends to be around 
this really simple binary is like, should Twitter or Facebook allow hate speech on their platforms? Well, Twitter and, and Facebook are not government entities in the United States. Uh, you know, they are private platforms. Do we want private platforms in a role of adjudicating speech decisions? You know, they are not accountable to the public. There's no mechanism by which to appeal the precedent, a precedent that's been set, particularly for a general purpose platform that is, in fact, meant to be a platform for speech that can be really problematic. And yet, at the same time, these companies have the ability and the right to set the terms of reference or the terms of use. So a product like Wikipedia, you know, we have a series of policies around what kind of content is appropriate for users to post on Wikipedia and what's out of scope because we're a purpose platform. Our purpose is to build an encyclopedia. It's not meant to be a, a platform for political organizing. And that's our you know, constitutional right as an organization in, founded in the United States and subject to U.S. jurisdiction. I would hate to see a platforms like ourselves either mandated to allow all speech, um, which in and of itself uh, would be, I think, a really significant uh, problem relative to our mission to provide accurate information. I, you, know, you don't want an article about how the earth is flat on Wikipedia. Um, and at the same time, we also don't want to be in a place where we're adjudicating what should be a matter for the courts and a matter for uh, public institutions around what what determines harmful speech and what recourse individuals have um, if they're blocked or banned. So from my perspective in general, the idea of sort of creating obligations on platforms to provide this private policing role is fundamentally problematic when it comes to the operation of a, of a society that is, is based in the idea of public institutions and public recourse. Now, having said that, I also think that the question, and, and then there's this whole other question about, you know, provisions around how we evaluate hate speech, the ways in which the First Amendment in the United States handles this is you know, somewhat different than the way that freedom of expression standards handles this uh, question outside of the United States, in Europe, in Canada, elsewhere. Questions around, you know, is hate speech is merely hateful or is this also about incitement to violence? All sorts of things that go into being able to make these determinations, which is yet again another reason why we want clear, transparent processes that are public in nature, not privatized in nature. But I, at the same time, I think we recognize the need for platforms. If platforms are going to have aspects of their terms of use or terms of service that say harassment is not acceptable, then they need to enforce those terms of use and terms of service. And they need to be able to do so in a way that is um, clear and consistent across those platforms and also offers users ways to appeal some of these content moderation decisions or at least get answers as to how those, those decisions are being made. So I, I think that it is not as simple a question as to privatized enforcement. I do think that it needs to have platforms meet in the middle around sort of what those terms of use are and, and how they're actually applied. Catherine, you took over in June of 2016. And uh, obviously, a few months later, a new president was elected. And subsequently, a lot of questions about truth and facts came out and really put a lot of the issues that you've been wrestling with at the center of the public debate and, and continue to be to this day. It's been three years. I'm, I'm curious if you have any reflections about your time so far and whether you expected this to be such a, a dominant issue in the discourse. And, and moving forward uh, with another election coming up next year, what is your sense about your role and, and Wikimedia's role will be in the next year and a half? 
Yeah. When I when I took this job, I thought it would be interesting. I didn't realize how relevant it would be, right? These questions of the tech lash, these questions of misinformation, these questions of sort of what is truth. It's certainly been a, a really interesting couple of years for that conversation. What I'll say is, you know, the election coming up next year is an election in the United States, but that's not the only place in which Wikimedia operates. Um, you know, our Spanish community just went through this with elections in Spain. Uh, you know, the German community has just gone through this with elections in Germany. Uh, the same thing in India not long back. And so what we've really seen is that one of the things that Wikipedia has had to do over the course of the past 18 years of its existence is is develop mechanisms by which we are managing for efforts to manipulate the platform, uh, managing for efforts to shift the, the sort of discourse around the body politic, managing for ways politicians, individual you know, campaigns, parties, et cetera, try to shift narratives to, to appear more flattering or, or their opponents' narratives to appear less flattering. And I think that you know, we, we try to avoid being sort of myopic on, on what you know, what the U.S. is doing in terms of the elections. We just had a major Canadian election, and that affects English and French Wikipedia, too. We are looking into the next year as a what we are hearing from people who use Wikimedia as a project, uh, whether that's private individuals or you know donors or you know tech companies, is an increased appreciation for the role that we play in in a world in which there's quite a lot of distrust of other sources of information, and a and I think an appeal to us to work to ensure that Wikipedia remains this platform that is neutral and that continues to sustain trust in the in the in the public. I think the the other part of what we're looking at is um, how do we ensure that we're providing our communities with the support that they need to continue to resist the efforts of bad actors to try to manipulate information. We recognize that as much as anything, the, with the increased trust that Wikipedia has, the increased prominence it will also have as a vector or as a target for efforts to manipulate the public perception. And so it's up to us and our communities to really ensure that they're well positioned to be able to identify these efforts and push back against these efforts. And I, I think we have quite a number of systems in place that we feel relatively good about, but we also, we never make the assumption that, that we're we're ultimately safe. Like we, like every other platform, are constantly alert to the to the potential real harms and take very seriously our role in 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 the public trust. It's really uh, become apparent to many of us just how global these issues are and the the key role that that the Wikimedia Foundation plays on a global stage in conveying a sense of stability through these turbulent times. Catherine, we're, we're, we're grateful that you've taken the time out of your busy day to talk to us, and uh, we hope to speak with you again soon. Thank you so much for the opportunity. That was Catherine Marr, the Chief Executive Officer and Executive Director of the Wikimedia Foundation. Catherine joined us from San Francisco. To our listeners, let us know what you thought about this episode. Use the hashtag BigTechPodcast on Twitter. I'm Taylor Owen, CG Senior Fellow and Professor at the Max Bell School of Public Policy at McGill. And I'm David Scott, Editor-in-Chief of The Logic. Thanks for listening. The Big Tech Podcast is a partnership between the Center for International Governance Innovation, CG, and The Logic. CG is a Canadian nonpartisan think tank focused on international governance, economy, and law. The Logic is an award-winning digital publication 
reporting on the innovation economy. Big Tech is produced and edited by Trevor Hunsberger, and Kate Rosewell is our story producer. Visit BigTechPodcast.com for more information about the show. Thank you.